Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Julie Heath. Julie is the Chief Executive of Treetops Hospice Care in Derbyshire. Julie, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you very much, Scott. Nice to join you. It's a real pleasure having you um, on the air with us as well, Julie. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and governments, business leaders, organisation leaders having to feel their way through this uncharted territory. Tell me, for somebody working in your line of work, how has it been trying to navigate the last few months? Um, I- thought that my job was um, fairly stressful before um, before COVID, but mm. um, my goodness, I don't think I've ever worked as hard in my in my career as as I, I have now. Um, I mean, everybody's threatened by the virus. I, I obviously work in a hospice; we're used to dealing with with death. That's our bread and butter. But I think the difference is that we're professionals working in in that um, in that area. The virus has impacted on us all. I've lost people close to me, and uh, you know, there's this dreadful spectre of the virus hanging over us all. Um, I think that it's it's leadership and resilience that's that, that's got me through, and it's it's leadership that that my hospice has needed um, more than anything. I think now, mm. people have sort of rallied around hospices people see us as beacons of kindness um, but we've radically had to change how we operate we um, would bring lots of people into our hospice um, on a, a daily basis to do lots of activities with them lots of support clinics we've had to stop bringing people in we've had to redesign our services um, some hospices have closed down sort of huge swathes of, of their activities, whereas um, we've actually run towards <laughs> run towards the danger rather than than run away from it. But obviously, in a very safe way. Mm. Um, first priority was the safety of, of my staff. Second priority was the safety of of the people that were there to serve. And I think my third uh, priority has been sustainability of, of of the organization, and that's all those factors have required really strong leadership, not just from me but from my leadership team. And would you say that you've been inspired by what you've seen from those around you, not just, of course, on the leadership team, but also those that have been coming into the hospice as well? And the reason I ask that question is because we've heard some incredible stories during this quite tragic and difficult time about how people are going above and beyond just to keep things going. Definitely, definitely. Um, In the hospice world, we rely a lot on our volunteers. Um, And at Treetops, we've got about 650 volunteers most of whom are actually in that vulnerable age group. Um, but people still want to help. Um, so they're still um, providing things for the hospice, even though they can't, can't physically come in. Our hospice at home nurses, we don't have a bedded unit here. We're slightly different to a lot of other hospices. We've always believed that people want the care um, and want the right to die in their own homes. So we've got 47 
nurses and nursing assistants that, that go out and look after people in their own homes. And we work with about 2,000 families a year. Now, those hospice-at-home nurses are still going out. They're sitting in PPE, you know, enduring nine-hour shifts, you know, looking after people who may be COVID positive. There's still people dying of the usual things that people die of. Now, there are real heroes. There are real heroes, you know, to be sat in protective equipment for all that time on their own. Mm. Um, we've also set up um, another service. Um, we're calling it our roaming nurse service, where we send out two nurses but um, Derbyshire is a huge county and we also cover parts of Nottinghamshire um, and they cover half of, of, of Derbyshire, which is a, a large area. Um, they go out and they're, they're called upon for like short burst activity. So they might go in and administer pain relief, syringe drivers. They might go in and provide some personal care to a family um, who, are, who are struggling with their loved one. They might go in and verify somebody's death. Now, they're brave. You know, they're brave. They're going out and doing that, not knowing what they're going into. So lots, lots of, lots of brave examples. Um, mm. And it's been quite inspiring, hasn't it, to see how people have really mustered a response to this and just really gone beyond their comfort zones as well in that time. And it's going to be... Um, a beneficial experience for those people who do get through this because it will be oh. building resilience, it will be building character. But also there's been such a renewed focus on sustainability now and a renewed focus on the long-term future of key industries such as care and also the hospice industry yeah. as well and uh, longevity. Um, there's been Definitely. a real light shed on that now. Um, of course, income generation's been hit um, during this period, but it really has brought it into the limelight, hasn't it, in a sense? It definitely has. And I think the hospices that, I mean, we have been fortunate. The government has listened to our plight um, and, and they have plugged a gap. I don't know how long that funding will will last and we can't just, just rely on it. Um, but we have to, my hospice costs, um, four and a half million pounds a year to run, but we have to raise 68% of that through our income generation side of the business. So shops, fundraising events, lotteries, cafes, all of that activity, apart from the lotteries, had to cease. So we've had to become a lot more imaginative. We've had to cancel sort of our big signature events, which lots of hospices have. Throughout the country, combined hospices have to raise um, £2.8 million every day to just keep going every day. So we're looking at sort of more imaginative ways, sort of doing things online. I, I think the whole future of, of fundraising is, is going to change. We're fortunate. We're, we have 12 and a half fantastic acres, you know, in a really lovely setting. We have car boot sales and lots of activities that go off here. Well, they're just not going to happen. So fortunately, just before um, the virus, we'd invested in our sort of marketing department and we're going to have to look at investing in digital. Um, and what I found as, as, as the chief exec, it's, it's definitely about promoting our charity, having the heart of a charity, but it's very much having the head of a business because if I haven't got my business head on, we're going to go under. You know, we're not 
um, a day centre for staff to come and to come here and have a lovely lovely time. Our our purpose, you know, our mission is to provide services for those that are dying in the community, to support their carers and their loved ones, and also to provide bereavement support for those who are left afterwards. You know, the founder of the hospice movement, Dame Cicely Saunders, said that um, how people die remains in the memory of those who live on. And we have noticed, you know, in Derbyshire, we've had sort of peaks of um, people dying. Um, and the way that people are dying, you know, dying alone, you know, are fantastic nurses in the hospital. They're limited in what they can do. Families not being able to go in and sit with their loved ones. You know, we're picking those pieces up now. There's going to be a lot of complex bereavement issues, you know, once this is washed, washed through. Um, we've got quite a large counselling and emotional support service which provides bereavement counselling. We've been contacted by care homes. We've also been contacted by local hospitals to say, what support can you give to our staff? Um, the ripples of this are going to sort of run through society in our communities for, you know, at least the next five years. And we need to sort of reshape, remodel, restructure our services to meet those challenges. And if we think about the next 12 to 18 months, uh, Julie, and what mm-hmm. that holds before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, what do you envision for yourself, for Treetops and for the hospice industry? And what do you hope to achieve during that time? Well, one, I hope to still be here. Um, the week before lockdown, I can anticipate, I anticipated all of this. And we did launch a campaign. I sort of stood on the steps of my hospice and spoke to our local community. It was recorded and, and put out on social media. And as a result of that campaign, we, we got about £200,000 in, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, and that'll keep us going a little bit longer. But it is actually keeping us going. I think lots of people think that lots of hospices um, are funded by the government. Well, as I've said, most of us, are independent charities. Um, I receive 32% of my funding from from health sources. Um, and if we're not agile enough, um, we can't carry on as, as we did before. Like I said, it's having that, that business head on to allow us to sort of carry on providing services. Services in a different way. Um, we're doing uh, our bereavement counselling, for instance, Obviously, um, that's going to have to be done using video links, Zoom, etc. Um, our hospice at home service is, is changing. Like I said, we've got a roaming nurse service. We're probably going to have to invest in, in more stuff like that. Um, and, you know, we've got 17 shops to reopen. I don't know what the market's going to be for people going into charity shops it might be that people have got less money and so we'll we'll need more things from charity shops or people may be reluctant to come in and sort of touch things that are second hand um so i think if we're not agile i'm sort of looking at my structures i think that inevitably there will have to be some redundancies at the moment i've got um just over a third of of 150 staff furloughed, we haven't got huge reserves in our in, in my hospice. Um, 
I was talking to a colleague in a smaller hospice yesterday. Um, they're in a lot worse situation than us. We rely on legacies. Uh, that might be an area that actually we see a few more of. Um, but I think the charity sector's got to beef up its <laughs> beef up its act. Really, we can't just sit back and be complacent and wait for the the money to sort of come running in. We've got to go out to people, tell them what we provide, tell them how much we're needed. And if they want us, they're going to have to support us. All our services are free. And I think there's, I think we've had a reluctance to ask for donations. I think we need to be telling people how much our services cost. Um, so, yes, we do get support from, from the health service. Um, but for every night sit that somebody has, you know, a hospice at home that's sick with their loved one whilst they're dying, we have to raise £105. And I think we're going to have to be more upfront about actually what our unit costs are. Um, we're already quite a lean hospice, but I think we're going to have to be a bit leaner. So it's going to be a very challenging time, and I think leadership is, is key. Um, the other thing that's about leadership being key is that oh, my staff and my volunteers mm. need to sort of feel the challenge um, feel their worth and value and and help sort of strive to help us achieve our objectives seems like there's some fantastic work that the uh, the hospice is doing and will continue to do and it's going to really sort of um, be a time of branching out as well and trying to deliver some of these services remotely which is fantastic uh, to see yeah. um, because of course that face-to-face contact uh, at the moment just isn't possible yeah and I think collaboration with other hospices you know um, that might be a bit more of an issue for, for people and perhaps painting a really black picture one of the things that has actually come out from this there's been a real, I think we've had a bit of an adrenaline rush, to be honest. Um, whereas some hospices have wound down their operations, we've wound ours up. Um, and we've had, because we've been um, using local media, radio, we've been on the telly quite a bit, using every opportunity to sort of flag up the good work that, that we've done. The community and local businesses have really rallied around. I mean, Toyota have loaned us a pool car for our roaming nurse service. We've had um, donations of PPE. We've got um, a company that's bringing in meals. We've been having 60 meals delivered for staff. Um, So much kindness, so much kindness. Um, And that's been really heartwarming. And hopefully... I think you said at the beginning, you know, at the end of this, the world might be a kinder place. People aren't going to look back and reflect on the contribution that bankers made during this this virus, are they? They're going to look mm. back and think, wow, those nurses were fantastic. Those doctors were fantastic. The supermarket staff were fantastic. Hopefully they'll think, Treetop hospice staff are fantastic. And I think it's a time for for society to just reflect on what is important. Um, there's a real job for hospices in, in the coming years. We're, we're going to have to help 
for Sire to heal, you know, through our bereavement service. Um, there have been lots of lessons learned. And, you know, it's my job and my leadership team's job to sort of carry on and make sure that, that we're there to provide what's, what's needed for our society. I think that's absolutely right, Julie. And, you know, given how informative it's been listening to exactly what Treetop Summer has been doing and the wider hospice industry at that, mm-hmm. I think it would be wonderful in the next few months, once we begin to understand more about the new normal, to catch up and yeah. have you back on the programme just to see what sort of work you are getting involved in at that point and just see how things are getting on. Yeah. One of the things that I think has been our, our achievement, what hospices throughout the country are famous for is cake. And when all this kicked off and we were looking at how we can help people feel better, um, we set up our cake and care service. So we've been spreading the cake throughout the community. We've been dropping cake off on people's doorsteps, including our, our volunteers and our guests. And we've been eating it too. So I've put on about a stone. So um, <laughs> I think that's one of our achievements. We've been feeding feeding our community. And it's something that has to be done, doesn't it? It's a wonderful um, initiative that people are getting involved in, just making sure that they're working in the communities. And even people who've been furloughed during this time as well have been actively getting involved in such things. And it's really, really good to see this renewed focus on well-being, mental health as well. And it's really brought us together, hasn't it, this period? It definitely has. Even though we've been working apart in a lot of cases. Julie, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and a really informative experience as well. And it's thank a shame. you, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, it's just a shame we don't have them um, all day because, um, of course, we could talk about it well into the night. Um, I'm sure as to what's been going on. But until we do touch base again, um, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because, as we both well know, we're certainly not out of the woods of this yet. No, not at all. Okay, thank you very much. That was Julie Heath speaking, the Chief Executive of Treetops Hospice Care in Derbyshire. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, serving as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and serving a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. 
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June, This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.